A Cypriot couple were preparing to get married. They had planned everything. The venue would be at a local Orthodox church. All their family would be there. The cake was ready. There were plenty of drinks for the reception. They were going to have a beautiful summer wedding. The ceremony went off without incidents. The speeches were made at the reception, and a toast was raised to the new couple. It was a perfect wedding, and the new couple danced the night away. Their happiness would not last. The wife had been open to her husband that she carried a mutation that could pass on a disease called beta thalassemia. Her husband had assured her that he was not a carrier for the same disease and had provided a certificate to the church to confirm that he had been screened, but one of his family members informed her that that was in fact not true. Distraught, she confronted him. He admitted that he was in fact a carrier, and she was enraged that he did not inform her before the wedding. What was he going to tell her? When they had a child and they just happened to become sick? She could not forgive him for his dishonesty. The marriage was over. Because he had lied about his carrier status, a divorce was not needed. Since the 70s, Cypriot law has made withholding beta thalassemia carrier status grounds for annulment, and this has been supported by the Orthodox Church, which requires certification at the wedding. Officially, their marriage never really happened. Hello, welcome to Genetic Drift, the podcast where we take a deep dive into the world of genetic diseases to try and lift the stigma surrounding them. I'm your co-host, Anthony. And I'm Juliet. That was so dramatic. So that is a story that I created based off of facts that do exist. So oh, it, does... it wasn't real? There is a good chance that something like that has happened, because that law does exist in Cyprus. Oh, I was so invested in the drama there, though. I know, maybe I should write telenovelas. <laughs> I feel a little betrayed, it's not real. Well, unfortunately, I couldn't find a specific case study about this, and it's probably because no one wants to announce that. Guess so. So, what is beta thalassemia? Okay, beta thalassemia is a blood disorder that reduces the production of haemoglobin. So haemoglobin is that iron-containing protein that in the red blood cells that carries oxygen throughout the body. Oh, like we discussed in sickle cell anemia. Yes, exactly. And there are two main types of severity. You can either have beta thalassemia major, or as it's also known, Mediterranean anemia. Or you can have beta thalassemia intermedia, which is the less severe form. Okay, so what is it? actually do. So, if you have the major form of beta thalassemia, you end up with life-threatening anemia, and the symptoms will show within the first two years of your life. So, anemia is, well, I'm trying to remember it from sickle cell, so it is when you don't have enough oxygen in your blood, or iron, Anemia is where you have a reduced capacity to transport oxygen around your body. That could be from a shortage of iron, haemoglobin, 
red blood cells. Okay, and in this case, it's hemoglobin. Yes. So what this itself can then cause is very slow growth, which for infants, that's also called failure to thrive. You can get jaundice because the lack of blood supply or the, the lack of oxygen supply to the liver can damage it. So your skin goes yellow and you can be very sickly. You can end up with an enlarged spleen. What's a spleen? Okay, so the spleen is an organ whose sole job is to filter out the dead blood cells from your blood and get rid of them. Oh, I'd always wondered what it did. So when your blood cells die, they go through your blood, into the spleen, the spleen filters out the dead ones, and they then go out your poop. Oh, we just poop out all our old blood. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I just never thought about it before. Yeah. We also have, um, so in beta thalassemia, there's also a couple other organs that get enlarged, which are the liver and the heart. And this could be because of the uh, irregular... Oh, wait, wait. What, what happened to the spleen? The spleen's enlarged. Oh, okay. So the spleen's enlarged. Why is it big? Because your blood cells are dying more frequently, so it's working overtime. Oh, because, so the blood, the blood cells don't have enough oxygen to stay alive? And so too many of them go to the spleen? Uh, some of it's that, but also because the hemoglobin's not forming properly, the cells just get broken down. Huh. Okay. So this is, like sickle cell, it's what's known as a hemolytic anemia. So blood-destroying anemia. So the red blood cells will often die more readily. A blood-destroying anemia? Yes. Wow, that I, is so, that is a much more dramatic term than, like, sickle cell. Why can't we just always call things blood-destroying? Because it would make patients feel really scared. Oh, uh, I mean, yeah, but also it's so cool. I don't think that they would view it as having, like, a superhero superpower. <sighs> Fine. So the spleen gets enlarged because of the red blood cells dying more often and therefore them working over time. And your liver and your heart get enlarged because of the irregular oxygen supply making them strain harder to work. So with the heart particularly, it will pump harder because it's under this impression that not enough oxygen is getting around the body. And then because it's pumping harder and harder, it will get bigger. Your heart gets swole. Yes, unfortunately though, that bigger heart can cause heart disease problems. Oh, swole heart isn't isn't great? No, it's a bit like those uh, bodybuilders that take too much steroids and end up really large and you just know at some point something's going to go wrong. Okay. Other things that beta thalassemia can cause are misshaped bones. And again, this is because the improper oxygen supply to the bones means that they don't grow properly while you're developing, so they can end up being malformed. What, like, like curved like scoliosis or something? Uh, yeah, but uh, instead of just the spine being curved, it could be things like the bones in your arm are curved, or they have little holes in them because they haven't filled the gaps in properly. Ooh. Yeah, it, depending on how severe it is, it can be really nasty. And obviously, here we're talking about the symptoms of beta thalassemia major, so we're talking about the nasty symptoms. And in some cases, because of kind of all the systemic damage, you can end up with delayed puberty as well. Okay, so so that's a quite a long list of different symptoms you just went through. What does the average person with beta thalassemia major look like? 
Uh, well, typically they will look like they're from the Mediterranean. Oh, that's specific. Well, that's the reason why it's also known as Mediterranean anemia, and that's also where the name thalassemia comes from. Because thalassa means the sea in Greek. Yep, and then the emia is just from anemia, so it's so it's Mediterranean anemia. I'm so glad my degree in classics and ancient Greek is coming in useful. Yeah, a lot of posh people did science in the old days. <laughs> there was a long list of symptoms. Which ones are actually really common? Do you know? Well, I don't know, to be honest. It depends on how the how it's handled. I think a lot of people will probably look like everyone else because you would be trying to treat the symptoms. And misshaped bones, in a lot of cases will not actually be visible except under x-ray. Okay. So those are just the symptoms for beta thalassemia major. There is also the less severe beta thalassemia intermedia. And with this, you can get mild to moderate anemia, slow growth, and you can also get bone abnormalities. Okay, makes sense. So how is beta thalassemia diagnosed? Well, the first thing you would do is you would give someone a physical exam, because if they have an enlarged spleen, you can feel it. You can feel it? The spleen is one of those organs just by the side of your abdomen, so if you start poking around and you feel like the big mass around there, then that's a sign that you could have an enlarged spleen. Next thing you could do is do an ultrasound to take a look at it. Excuse me while I feel around for my spleen. It's, it's also the reason why sometimes... Uh, you hear about people ending up in a fight, getting hit in the stomach, and being knocked out immediately. Because if you hit the spleen, you can cause this big drop in blood pressure and someone can pass out. Huh. Very painful. It's very painful to be hit in the spleen. I'm learning so much about the spleen. Wow. It's a very important, unrecognised organ. <laughs> Justice for spleens. Oh, definitely, yeah. <laughs> the unspoken hero that we don't deserve, but we have. <laughs> it is truly the Batman of organs. His parents died? <laughs> Not that part. <laughs> Where were we? Diagnosing it. Okay, so as well as doing a physical exam and messing with the internal Batman... You can also take a look at the red blood cells under a microscope. So a bit like with sickle cell, the red blood cells change. And in this case, they are normally small and weirdly shaped. So instead of looking like a little donut, they will just kind of look like a sad blob. Aw, little blobby cells. Another thing that you can do is a complete blood count, which can reveal anemia, because if you have a shortage of red blood cells, and this is a hemolytic anemia, then you know that there's a good chance that beta thalassemia might be a cause for it. Ultimately, though, the diagnosis that will give you a confirmation outside of DNA analysis, which can also be done, is a procedure called hemoglobin electrophoresis. Yeah, don't worry. Okay. So. What this process involves is taking some blood, putting it on a special paper, and zapping it with electricity. And what that does is that the different globins have different 
sizes and they also have a charge. So when you run a current through them, they start moving along and you get these little bands. If the bands are in the wrong place, you know that there's something wrong with, for example, beta globin. You just zap some blood. Yeah, you zap some blood and you look at the lines. Science is weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Well, I, I have a question. Yeah, go for it. If So if you have different shaped blood cells like you do in sickle cell anemia, does that cause some of the same problems we discussed with sickle cell, like the blood cells causing more blockages? No, uh, not typically, because the blood cells are actually smaller, so they're less likely to get in the way. Okay, so small blobby cells. Yeah, they're just kind of a little little sad and pathetic. Oh. <laughs> yeah, life's been hard to them. So, once you've been diagnosed, what's your outlook? It depends quite heavily on the severity of your condition. So, if you have uh, intermedia, and especially if you have milder forms of uh, beta-thalassemia intermedia, then your life expectancy can often be unaffected. It can be the same as the, uh, the regular population. Yay! However, oh. there's always a however, if you have beta-thalassemia major, it often progresses to death before the age of 20. Whoa! That's way worse than I was expecting. Yes. And uh, later on, I'll explain why there's that difference. But first, let's go over how you can treat this condition. Okay, how do you treat it? Well, particularly for the severe cases, regular blood transfusions are needed because you don't have enough red blood cells, so give someone more of them and give them ones that will do the job properly. Makes sense. Yeah. It's just bringing a competent team to your, uh, to, to your body. Otherwise... You can have, give someone. You also have to give someone medicines to reduce excess iron. Now, the reason for this is that when you give people blood transfusions, you're also increasing the amount of iron in their blood, and if they have too much iron, that can be really dangerous for the body. Huh? Why? Because your body can't handle that level of iron. So, for example, you're advised against taking iron supplements when you don't need them because bacteria can use them. So you can actually encourage infection. Wow. Yeah. So you should be careful with certain supplements. Don't feed your bacteria. Well, only feed the good bacteria, not the bad bacteria. Bad bacteria can go away. <laughs> okay, what else can you do? Well, in severe cases, you might need a splenectomy. So take the spleen out. Yes, because it's so enlarged and it's taken such a beating that it's just going to explode if you don't. Splody spleen? Yeah, some organs, if they're stressed too much, they can just burst. And the problem is, if they burst, not only are they going to release a bunch of dying cells that will release a signal to other cells to tell them to start dying, but they could also release a bunch of bacteria that weren't supposed to go into that part of the body, and you could die of sepsis. Oh my goodness. So what happens if you have your spleen removed? How do you get all those dead blood cells out of your body? I'm not entirely sure. Justice for spleens. Yes, spleens need more recognition, even from me. <laughs> and you also sometimes need surgery to remove your gallbladder. And I think this is again because of stresses put on that. So the gallbladder is 
job is to produce bile for your digestive system, but if it's getting poor oxygen supply, the tissue's going to suffer. And because it's an organ that you can remove with relatively minimal um, long-term complications, they do. Huh. I'm learning so much about all the little organs in your body. I wouldn't have thought that anemia would have caused those kind of issues, but... Yeah, um, there's two more treatments. Uh, there's also folic acid supplementation. So, Well, I'm trying to remember this one. It's the one you get taught about when you're learning about women's menstruation. It's because it can help stimulate red blood cell production. Aha! So they often give it to pregnant women. Okay. And then the final one, which is so common in uh, particularly blood disorders, but so many other conditions as well, bone marrow transplant. Always got to go for the dramatic option. Yes, but with that one, it is a curative option. Yay, cures! Because you are putting in tissue that can produce working red blood cells into someone's body. So I would guess that that's what they do for quite extreme cases? Yes, if they can. Obviously, you need to find a match in the bone marrow donor list, and then you need to actually get it into your body. So can that help increase the life expectancy for somebody with very severe thalassemia? Oh, definitely. Yes, if you if you can get that done if you can get that given to someone with beta thalassemia major, then you can effectively just stop symptoms. Wow. Yeah. It's a cure, but obviously it's just a difficult cure to give. The other option that some people take, which isn't a treatment, is prevention. And this is where this is what kind of inspired the little telenovela-esque story earlier, which is that in Cyprus, the Orthodox Church requires that people provide a screen, uh, provide a certificate that shows their beta thalassemia status, and that has to be given before marriage, and that then allows the final decision on marriage and reproduction options to be left to the couple. So the couple can choose whether or not they have a kid from it, but in order to get married, they have to have shown them, each other and the church their status on whether or not they carry a mutation for beta thalassemia. So that people can make an informed choice about whether to marry somebody that they might never be able to have uh, children with? Yes, or, and this is an interesting one, whether or not they can have an abortion because in this situation, the Orthodox Church will actually support it. Oh, wow. So this is this seems like quite a specific condition to have laws around. But yeah, it, well, it's because in Cyprus, the major form of thalassemia is quite common. So it's a severe risk that they just want to mitigate. Wow. Okay, so if you're in a population where it's very common... People are aware and they tend to get screened for it before they make a decision on whether to start a family. It depends on the location. Some places are better than others. Cyprus takes one of the most forward-facing approaches to this, but there are other countries that have a lot of beta thalassemia, like Bangladesh, where people aren't really educated on this and they don't have the options or really know their options. Oh, so what type of genetic disorder is beta thalassemia? So beta thalassemia is defined as an autosomal recessive disorder. Can you remember which one that is? Oh, one day I will learn these words, but today is not that day. I know recessive, you need it from both parents. You need two copies, yes. What autosomal is an autosomal? is, it's not linked to 
sex chromosome. Yes. Yes! So, that's what it is. In rare cases, it can be autosomal dominant, though, which is strange. Why would it only be dominant in some cases? I guess it's a quirk of the specific type of mutation that someone has. But in all these cases, it's the same gene that's affected, which is the uh, HBB gene, which you might remember from our sickle cell episode, is what codes the hemoglobin beta. Ooh, ooh, was that one of the building blocks for the hemoglobin protein? Yeah, that's right. So it's it's two beta, two alpha, they form together, and that's what you need for hemoglobin. But what happens in this is if you have beta thalassemia, you have one of more than 350 different types of mutations of this gene, and they come under two main groups. You can either have a group where... You either have little substitutions of the genes, which are often in an area before the gene that tells the body to read the gene and actually make protein from it. And this section is known as a promoter region. So there's an error in kind of the start code for the gene, the bit right before the gene, so that when it's being read that says, start doing this. Yeah, um, not to be confused with the start codon which is when the beginning of the gene is actually made. But it is the part that tells you to start reading it. And as a result, you end up typically with these mutations of having less of the hemoglobin beta, whereas the other kind of mutation you can get is a deletion, where sections of the gene itself are removed. And this often results in more severe cases because one or two things typically happens. Either you lose such a large section that it doesn't get synthesized at all, or you lose sections that mean that the mRNA produced is so wrong that your cell decides not to use it and destroy it. Remind me what mRNA means? So mRNA is the intermediary between the gene and the protein. So you have a gene, a copy of mRNA is made from it, it goes out of the nucleus, the little kind of nerve center of the cell, into the uh, other parts of the cell, and then that mRNA is used to make a protein. Okay, so in this case, that that messenger, that mRNA, is not reading the original gene properly? So what's happened is that the gene is messed up to a point that when it makes a copy of the mRNA, that mRNA is not useful. So the cell re- kind of just rejects it and destroys it. So you don't get any of the protein made yeah no protein is formed and that's how you get these really severe cases so no protein is formed to to carry oxygen with the red blood cells yeah so that means not enough oxygen and bad things yeah and weirdly if you end up getting this underproduction of beta globin or even no production of beta globin eventually your body um your body decides well i haven't got any to work off of so it starts producing less of the alpha globin as well. So, oh. so none of the components for the hemoglobin are being made. Does that just mean you don't have any blood cells carrying oxygen? It means a lot less of them are. And in severe cases, it means that they are kind of functionally useless, which is why people end up having to have these regular blood transfusions. Well, so this sounds kind of scary. How common is it? Well, it's not the most common of conditions. You would expect to see it globally in one in every 100,000 people. 
Oh, okay. That's not too common. Again, however, it occurs more frequently in certain countries. So it's most populous in the Mediterranean countries, North Africa, the Middle East, Central Asia, Southeast Asia, and India. And I've got a few uh, stats here. 15% of Greek and Turkish Cypriots are carriers for the beta thalassemia major, which is why they put in that law with the Orthodox Church signing off on it. And thankfully, this is for a milder form of beta thalassemia, but 80% of the people of Papua New Guinea are carriers for that. 80? 80? Yes, 80. What? I know, it's crazy, right? So does just pretty much everybody on Papua New Guinea have beta thalassemia? Everyone's at risk, pretty much. That seems like a really big problem. Yeah. So, as we'll discuss later, there there is a reason why it's as common as it is. Oh, you're keeping me in suspense here. I know, I know. But first, we've got to cover, before we get to the break, just a couple of the additional illnesses that are associated with beta thalassemia. This bit's always so depressing. Yes, but we get it out of the way now so that we can go into the second half hopeful. Okay, hit me. Okay, heart failure. Great. Always fun. Can you guess why? Because it's not enough oxygen and your heart gets too swole. Yep, pretty much. Just struggles. Uh, Liver disease, same kind of thing, really. Um, But also you can get chronic hepatitis. What? Yep. Uh, I guess because your body, your liver is just struggling a lot more. If you catch any form of hepatitis or you get it from a blood transfusion, um, you can get you can get chronic infection. And well, once you get hepatitis, it doesn't tend to leave you. And this can then turn into liver cirrhosis, which just means like scarring of the liver. Oh, that's unfortunate. Yes. You can also get hormonal problems. Why? You're not getting enough oxygen to the glands that produce the uh, different hormones. They don't produce enough of the hormones. And that can cause a huge array of issues. Yes. So the ones I found were diabetes. So that will be because of the pancreas not getting enough oxygen. Hypothyroidism. And also, interestingly, hypogonadism. Which for anyone who's Does not... Does that mean what I think it means? What do you think it means? Something to do with... Balls? Yeah. Balls or ovaries? Yeah. So the balls, the testes and the ovaries are gonads, and they produce pretty much all of the uh, sex hormones. If they're not getting enough oxygen, they don't produce enough of them. So you can end up with men not building enough, building as much muscle as they would do, or the voice not dropping, or you could end up with women's hips not cur- changing shape and curving, or lack of breast development, depending on how severe it is, um, will determine what happens. Can it affect fertility? If it's really severe, yeah. So if, if you're not producing enough uh, estrogen and progesterone, then you could expect sterility. Oh no. You also, and this one seems to be turning up in a lot of the ones we cover, can get osteoporosis. That's issues with your bones. Yes, that's when your bones become brittle. Now, I stress before you get to this one, it's not known why this one happens. We just don't know? It's common, we just don't know the reason why. You know it, science? There are more pressing things to cover with beta thalassemia, I think. There's also 
you can also get hepatitis C and HIV, and unsurprisingly, that's just from blood transfusions if they weren't screened. Oh, that's just really adding salt to the wound. It really is. It's quite unfortunate. But with that, we're going to take a break and then we will go into the history of this condition. Welcome back, everyone. Is it history time? Yeah, it's history time. Cool. Tell me all about the history of thalassemia beta. Beta thalassemia? Beta thalassemia. Yeah, that one. (laughs) Okay, so I'll talk about first how far back we think it goes. So, we've been... Uh, So there have been some studies where we look at these little markers around the gene. So you have the gene itself, and then you have these little bits of DNA around it. And they call them haplotypes. But all you need to know is groups that are related to each other, those little markers will be really similar. Groups that are many generations apart will be less similar. And from that, you can work out the uh, when those groups were all together and how many generations apart it was until you got to the ancestor. Okay. From that, we've worked out that it's likely the first beta thalassemia mutation appeared before humans left Africa. Oh, wow. Real old. So about 60,000 or more years ago. And part of the reason we know that is that we've actually been able to use thalassemia to add evidence to um, the out of Africa theory, which is the theory where that humans have first evolved in Africa and then moved out into Europe and Asia in two different waves. Huh. So does that mean you can trace the spread of beta thalassemia as a way of tracing human movement? You can do it for some of it, yes. So the beta thalassemia that has this sort of ancestral origin, you can do that for. Strangely, some forms have arisen at random. Oh, why are there always random cases? Seems so unfair. Because life's random. Wow. I don't need this existential stuff right now. Fair enough. So, even though beta thalassemia is 60,000 years old, it really established itself more with the advent of agriculture, and it seems to have followed the movement of this technology. So based on the little changes and which area and which locations have the oldest forms of beta thalassemia we've been able to kind of trace the movement of it and it's followed the movement of agricultural technology huh so about 10,000 years ago it seemed to have properly established itself in the middle euphrates so mesopotamia that kind of area the cradle of civilization exactly and it was also the cradle of beta thalassemia. <laughs> Do we know why it established itself when agriculture did? Well, once you start farming, you have a lot more stagnant water, which allows mosquitoes to reproduce, which means you get more malaria. And although this is jumping ahead a little bit, the reason that beta thalassemia has stayed around for as long as it does is that if you have one copy, you end up being resistant to malaria, a bit like sickle cell. 
Oh, so it's another one that if you just have one copy, you're much more likely to survive. Yeah, you get that heterozygous advantage. So there's a reason for having one copy. It's just unfortunate when you get two. Huh. It's interesting that this one's more common in Mediterranean populations, unlike the sickle cell, which was more common in African populations. Well, I'll go on and explain why. So after it established itself in the region of Mesopotamia, it then moved to the Mediterranean uh, around about 5000 BC, and then it established itself in Greece somewhere between three and 4000 BC. And back then, ancient Greece was known to be a hotspot for malaria. So there were a lot of cases of malaria, and therefore the uh, mutation for beta thalassemia became a lot more common. Because more people survived yes. with the mutation. And then the expansion of the Greek Empire brought that mutation to other areas of the Mediterranean. A couple thousand years later? Yes. <laughs> yeah, obviously a little while later, but... Cool. So, this time, Greek imperialism spread a disease. Also, you know, trading. Some of that, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so that's why it became very common in the Mediterranean, and that's why it then got the name thalassemia, or the Mediterranean anemia. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, I think that's just such a cool feature. And it's cool that there's been enough research to trace that. This is the best history section so far. I'm glad you like it. This one was a lot of fun researching. So when did when did we characterize beta thalassemia? Okay, so although it although this disease has been around for about sixty thousand or more years, beta thalassemia major was actually first characterized in 1925, and some of this will be to do with things like you know microscope technology, having the people to observe, and this was and the person who characterized it was an American physician called Thomas Cooley, um, who observed that in Mediterranean immigrants there were high rates of this kind of anemia, and then he characterized it, and then he looked at the blood, and he. Uh, ran some tests and eventually just, uh, realized that this was a hereditary condition. And back then, it was not named uh, thalassemia. Was he it named... named after him? Yes. What a surprise. It was named Cooley disease because they're always modest. <laughs> yeah, there's something about old scientists and naming themselves, though. Yeah. Okay, so it wasn't characterized until the 1920s? Yeah. Do we have any? Was it written about or anything before then? If we know it was this old, I wasn't able to find anything. But again, if this is something that kills someone at quite a young age with the major cases, there's a good chance that no one really put much study into it. So I tried to find any reference of it in the sort of standard texts, the standard ancient texts. So the Ebus Papyrus. I looked up to see if Pliny the Elder had anything about it. Sadly, he doesn't. He's got a whole lot of crazy stuff, but nothing on beta thalassemia. I guess maybe it'll be because the symptoms aren't that specific? No, they're quite general. And in order to identify it, you need technology that we haven't really had until the 20th century. 
Okay, so that was some really cool history. Where are we now, and what's coming for beta-thalassemia? Well, just like a lot of these other ones, we've got gene therapy coming! Woo! So, we currently have trinical... Trinical? So, trinical. <laughs> so, we currently have clinical trials for a treatment that uh, knocks down a gene called BCL11A. I know that sounds like a mouthful, but we covered it in sickle cell. This is just the gene where, if you knock it down, it tricks your body into making the fetal hemoglobin instead, which doesn't need the alpha or beta globins. What does knock it down mean? So that just means that the gene works less. Okay, like flip a switch on it? Yeah, you just basically tell it no. Okay. And then your blood kind of goes into, we're going to make baby blood. Mmm, baby blood. That's probably the most metal thing you've said in a long time. <laughs> but yes, so one of the tricks is to just bypass the whole system. Another clinical trial that's being run involves introducing cells that have a functional beta-globin gene introduced into them. So it's a bit like the bone marrow, but instead what you do is you just transfuse cells into the person's body, and it's their own cells, and they've genetically modified them. That wasn't a very clear way of explaining. It's a, it's a weird treatment. So from my understanding, you take some of the patient's cells, you then genetically modify them, and then you put the cells back into them. So that way the cells don't get rejected, but they produce functional beta-globin. And then I think from that they're able to kind of keep replicating. So this might not be as permanent as a bone marrow transplant, but I think it will be less painful and could probably be a treatment that you just take months at a time. Oh, interesting. So that's quite a cool one. Cool. So what should everybody know to help a patient with beta thalassemia? Well, a good thing to do is to help education projects in affected countries with low levels of education. So as I mentioned earlier with Bangladesh, there was a study conducted where they surveyed a bunch of students, and they, and they found that of these university students, 12% of them didn't want to be screened for fear of being labelled as a carrier in their community. So because of this ignorance and this uh, uh, certain lack, uh, lacking education in areas that are quite important for their well-being, there's this stigma around being associated as carrying this condition, despite the fact that you have no control over it. Oh. So that one's quite a sad one. Otherwise, addressing a few uh, misconceptions will definitely help with trying to lessen the stigma around beta thalassemia. So the first thing to address, amazingly, is that it's not contagious. People think it's contagious? In some countries, there is this misconception that blood disorders are the same thing as blood-borne illnesses. Ah, uh, I can see the confusion. Yeah, so they think, oh, there's something wrong with your blood. It must be kind of like hepatitis, HIV, and therefore people can end up being a pariah in their society. Oh, that's really sad, because they're actually completely fine, especially if they're careful when they start a family. Yeah, they're not contagious, and if proper family planning measures are taken into place, then they won't have any children that are ill, and... If they have the disease, by passing on one gene, they guarantee that their child is pretty safe from malaria, which in countries like Bangladesh and Africa 
and some and the Indian subcontinent in general can be quite beneficial. And uh, with that, we're kind of heading towards the end of this episode. So I thought we'd just talk about uh, a good bit of reading that people can cover. So where I got a lot of that information on the history, which unfortunately it takes a bit of a sciencey angle. So you might prefer what I said is a article called Beta Thalassemia Distribution in the Old World, an ancient disease seen from a historical standpoint. Cool. I'm quite sad this is over. That was a really fun one. I'm glad you liked it. I think with this one, because there's been enough work done on it, there's quite a fun historical story to follow. Yeah. So if you have any questions for us or any feedback on the show or suggestions for what we should cover, contact us on our Twitter at geneticdrift1, on our email at geneticdriftpodcast at gmail.com, or join our Facebook group, Genetic Drift Podcast, and get in touch with us. Also, leave us a review on iTunes to help spread the word about our podcast. Yes, thank you in advance if you do that. The music for this podcast, like every other, is produced by William Kitchener Music. And with that, I'm just going to say be nice to everyone because you can't see the genes, so don't expect to see the illness. Goodbye. Bye.